You're listening to Community Now on Hope FM with Keith Jones Bookshop, serving the community for over 50 years. Visit keithjones.co.uk. Well, time now to introduce my second guest, who's Martin Keenan. Now, Martin's currently responsible for four Methodist churches locally that's Barton on Sea, Milford on Sea, Brockenhurst, and Muddyford Lane in Christchurch. Have I got that right? You have. That's right. <laughs> and if you've been listening to Hope FM, you would have heard his dulcet tones doing our Thought for the Day. Actually, this morning you did it, Martin, uh, and you also did it on, uh, was it was it Monday or four. Tuesday? I think, yeah, Monday. Monday, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so, uh, so, four churches, that's a big responsibility. I've I've had more in the past. It's just it's just a Methodist system. I had the most I've had is nine at one go, but it's um, nine yeah. churches. Wow! Yeah, it's not easy. Because you and I have got quite a bit in common, really. Because I also started out. You know, um, in fact, John and I got married in the Church of the Nazarene uh, really? in the city of Sheffield. Uh, you you of course were a Nazarene trained minister, weren't you? I was. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and even even you spent a wee bit of time in the land where I come from. I spent well three years at university in Belfast, and then four years on in Donegal Road Church as a Nazarene in Belfast. <laughs> so yes. have you have you survived the experience then? You know. Yes. Well, if you haven't heard the story, I always I always take credit for ending the troubles because we we left on the thirtieth of August, nineteen ninety four, and on the thirty first of August, nineteen ninety four, the IRA called a ceasefire. So I've always accepted some credit for that. <laughs> Well, I think I think you should. <laughs> yes, once, once I left, it was okay. <laughs> now, obviously, uh, I, I wanted to sort of profile uh, your life, Martin, because obviously you, you you've had a very very interesting life. And uh, so, over the next hour or so, I'm going to I'm going to ask you all sorts of personal oh, questions you? about you know about like. Your book is called Accepted at Last, and I'm holding a copy uh-huh. uh, in in my hand. I haven't had a chance uh, to read it, but I have uh, had a little synopsis of it, which I've looked at. But you didn't have the easiest start in life, did you? No, no. Um, actually, I have a lot of blanks in, in my memory of when I was growing up. But um, no, it's called Accepted because most most of my experience felt like rejection all the way through. Um, even, I mean, in, in my testimony... I have two ways to tell in my testimony. When I um, transferred into the Methodist ministry, I had to have a psychological profile. And um, when I went to go and meet the psychologist, my wife said to me, if he asks you questions about your childhood, just don't tell him the truth because you'll never get accepted. So she was joking. Well, I assume she was joking. <laughs> and, and he asked me about my childhood and I told him about my childhood. And he said to me, have you ever considered seeing a psychiatrist? And I said, have you ever considered the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's got the power to transform anybody. And uh, that was the end of that conversation. But <laughs> that cuts out given details. Yeah, it, I, I didn't find life easy. I, I have a lot of blanks. Um, when I went to school, they thought I couldn't speak for the first year or so because I just didn't speak for the first year or so. I don't know why I didn't. Um, I just I just grew up with a great deal of fear and, and I thought everybody was going to abandon me all the time. And then I had the misfortune of coming across a Bible when I was nine years old and reading it. It was King James Version. And I started in Genesis. So the these and those. And very much. Yep. And I got to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2, which is toned down in a lot of the modern versions. But it, in the modern versions, it says, uh, no illegitimate person, I was illegitimate, um, will be allowed to stand in the assembly of the Lord down to the 10th generation. And I thought, even God doesn't want me. And that was my first experience of God, that even God doesn't want me, because down to the 10th generation, he doesn't want me, not just me, but down to the 10th generation. Um, 
that kind of put me off a bit. I, I, I panicked about that because I thought, well, I can't live and I, I can't even commit suicide because where would I go? Because even God doesn't want me. <laughs> so, yeah, that was at nine years old. Um, I, I now know what Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 2 means and how the New Testament overrules it. But <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about because yours is a story. You're on Hope FM and yours, yours is a story of hope and indeed of, you know, I was thinking, I was having a shower this morning, Martin. I was looking forward to interviewing you today uh, and I was thinking, you know, God, you're amazing. You're a God of restoration uh, and, and putting things right. And of course, you're a walking testimony uh, of that. Mm. Uh, th- there will be people listening to the program this morning who, who maybe even are in a dark place right now, feeling themselves rejected. Um, mm. Because sadly, rejection and being treated badly is one of those things that goes along with this thing we call life. Mm-hmm. When, did, when did it first occur to you that, that, that you were not, not like others, that you were being rejected? And, and what, what did that feel like? It was always there. I, I was adopted. Um, I, I didn't know the true story of my birth. I found it out when I was 40, um, and it was completely different from what I'd been told. But it, it was, I, I think that's why I didn't speak when I went, first went to school. I, this is my theory. I don't know. I can't ask anybody. So did you know your, your, your real mum? I met her when I was 40. Yeah. But no. Um, the, and the story I was told was just that she wasn't married and she couldn't afford me. But, but that immediately translates when you're... See, my, my brother, brother, who was also adopted two years older than me, I, th- I think before he went to school, he was told that he was adopted because people talked about it in those days. Kids in the playground talked about it being adopted. Uh, it was a kind of, you know, you're not normal, you're adopted kind of thing. I've got real parents kind of stuff. And I think I was told at that point. And I, at that, it was, it was, the social services have this line that says to parents, tell them that they were special because they were chosen. Other people have to take what comes along. But you were chosen. And I read that as, if I was so special, why did my mum give me away? And it was that. And if your mum gives you away, you just sort of think, well, who else wants you if your mum doesn't want you? And that's what, that's what I kind of grew up with. That's my childhood experiences of it. And, but even my adopted parents, um, I, I tell in the, in the book a, a story about going on Christmas shopping. We were, we, I'm from Cheshire. And our nearest cities were like Chester and Liverpool and Manchester. And, and going Christmas shopping in those cities... And always making sure I had enough money with me just in case they abandoned me so I could get a bus back home to the parents who'd abandoned me, which never actually made sense, but I couldn't reason things out as well back then. But just in case they abandoned me, like she'd abandoned me, I always carried money with me because you never know. <laughs> when you're going to need and I, I never got beyond the, the, what would happen at the end of today. You know, I've got enough money for today. I could get a bus home. But after that, I, I never had any thoughts of it. But it was it was a constant fear of don't take and then to be put in a class I think in my day I went to school in 1967 probably 66, 67 there were 45 kids in my class and it was massive and to suddenly be put in a a room with all these people it was just sit in the corner kind of thing and, and let them get on with it I, 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 my school is completely different these days I've, I've been a school governor I've worked in schools as a minister but a school back then yeah you just, just got overlooked and, and I, I just hated being there and I didn't like being at home either. And I, <laughs> um, I didn't like going on holidays. There wasn't anything I actually liked growing up. That was the thing. It was, I was just, it was constant fear of when's this going to be over. And how old were you when you came into the care of the local authority? When I was adopted. 
I, mean, I, was eight, I was eight weeks old when I was adopted. So really from being a baby, Yeah, I think it was hearing the story about it that, that triggered it off. But I mean, there, there are, there's some people have this, this theory that you, you know from, from um, conception because in the womb, you're aware that you whether it's a cosy place to be or whether it's a hostile place to be and i imagine there was that because it's, it's always it's, it's kind of still a default mode to think if people don't want to know it must be me and then it's oh hang on a minute and of course it isn't but it's always a, the default mode i go to straight away it's the immediate trigger and you go oh, forget that it's so, not true so what was what was the, the experience of being adopted by by effectively another family because obviously as a baby you wouldn't have known no much about it but clearly that realization would have come as you got older i wasn't like them that was the, that was the thing that they pointed out a lot that i wasn't like it was a working class family um i i passed the 11 plus i went to grammar school i i i so you were had clever. A certain amount of intelligence yeah which wasn't i was the only one that did have and and i i didn't I didn't do things automatically because that's what you do. I, I just did my own thing and it wasn't the same and I, I got a lot of stick for being me. So the accepted in the title is I'm accepted for being me and, and the, the, the not ex- being accepted for being me has, has come, I mean, ask me about the church later on. The church rejected me as well. The Methodist church that I now minister in right at the very beginning told me they will never accept me. Um, and, and hearing that and hearing the words, we will never accept you from the Methodist church, someone official in the Methodist church, I've been 25 years as a Methodist minister now, <laughs> beat them. But, <laughs> but they did tell me at the beginning, you will never be accepted. And, and it's, it's that, it's, it's, you're not like us. In fact, that's where I had to go on, on probation as a Methodist minister. This is jumping ahead. I was ordained in the Nazarene church, but because I wasn't a Methodist, I had to go on probation for two years. And, and all the way through, it was, you're, you're, you've not got the right personality, you're not doing this right, you're an evangelical in a non-evangelical setting at the moment. We don't, you don't fit, you're not one of us. When I, when I went to look at my second, I was appointed in my first circuit, I got to look at my second one, I went to a certain circuit, and as soon as the superintendent minister found out I hadn't grown up a Methodist, that was it, I was out. Don't want you because you're not one of us, and I've never been one of us. <laughs> And yet, and yet, of course, there's quite a strong affinity between the Nazarene Church and Methodism. There is. They're in the World Methodist Council now. They weren't at the time when I was there. But yeah, I mean, they're all Wesleyan. We'll, we'll get to your, your church life a, 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 a wee bit later on. Let's talk about your, your faith, because obviously, you know, in those early years, God didn't figure at all. I think you said you were nine whenever you nine, st- started yeah. reading the Bible. What was your view of God then? I mean, did you, you, I think you said that you didn't, f- you felt rejected by him. It was just like everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another person to reject me. Another person who didn't want me. So what um, was it that made the difference? What, when I became a Christian? That's, that's where it gets fuzzy, because for the, for the next nine years, roughly, um, I, I prayed every day. This is a funny thing because I, I had this theory that I'm, I might die in my sleep. I never had a theory I might die when I'm awake, just that I would die in my sleep. Sleep away. Yeah. So just before I fell asleep, I would, I would rush through saying the Lord's Prayer because it's anything I knew. And I would rush through at top speed. I, I don't know if I can do it anymore. I don't know all the words anymore. Because <laughs> um, it was a superstitious thing that was part of my pre-Christian life. And I thought, well, at least if I say that, when I die, I, I, mean, I didn't know what the options were. I didn't know way you're supposed to go when you die but I thought maybe they'd accept me just for that because it's not my fault the way I was conceived um, but when I was 17 most, most of my testimony involves girls um, there was a girl I liked who went to this youth club in this building that um, turned out to be a church but I didn't know it was a church <laughs> it's a modern building um, I went along to this youth club and over the th- next few months um, 
got to know some of the people and the youth club leader lent me a copy of the cross and the switchblade which everybody knew the cross and the switchblade back then you have to explain it these days teen challenge all that stuff um and i read that um in january 1980 and and seeing that nicky cruz who was a not the gang leader but the the warlord of the mau maus in, in new york and he was someone who was pretty rough person and he became a christian and i thought if god can accept him surely can he can accept me i haven't done what nicky cruz has done my sin i didn't know the word sin at the time my sin is um someone else's fault because i i didn't ask to be born so it's their fault not mine so maybe and i prayed the only prayer i knew how to pray which was god make me a christian now i've talked to evangelical sins and they say well i should have acknowledged my sin i should have repented of my sin i should have and i said well i didn't know any of that i had nobody to tell me but i changed instantly in an instant i mean one of the things i used to do i had a death wish again it's mentioned in the book that when i was 13 i, I ran away from a fight and I, I could never live with myself after that. So I used to always, we had all kinds of skinheads and all kinds of things in my town. I used to walk the streets on my own, hoping that someone would attack me so that I could redeem myself. And they always used to move out of my way. It was really annoying. <laughs> and after I became a Christian, I remember walking along the road and there were these skinheads coming towards me with Doc Martin boots and very short jeans and stuff. And I crossed the road to avoid them. I didn't, really, I didn't do it consciously. And I, I stopped myself and I went, wow, that was unexpected. And, but there were other things, that's the one I can tell you about, but there were a lot of other things that changed instantly. A lot of things didn't change instantly, but that did. And then I went along to a youth club in a church, and they said, the, the words I heard as I knocked on the door, youth club Bible study, what's he doing here? And I thought, and there it goes again. <laughs> God wants me, church doesn't want me. And it was that again, you know, and it's always been that sort of God or church, Jesus church. This is Hope FM. Well, my very special guest uh, uh, today uh, is Martin Keenan. Martin uh, is currently a Methodist uh, minister and he has responsibility for four churches, Barton on Sea, Milford on Sea, Brockenhurst and uh, Muddyford Lane. And we're talking really about, about his life. And of course, we were talking about that sort of coming from a life of rejection, you know, not knowing, you know, your, your, real, your real parents going in, being adopted and so on, even not, not naturally fitting into the family that 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 adopted you and then of course your conversion well it seems to me that you, you didn't fit any box at all because uh, you know that you, you didn't do the right text you know and repent of your sin and all those mm-hmm. things that you have to do to become a christian but of course the truth of the matter is that we really don't have to tick boxes do we no no i mean the, part of the problem that that came out later when, when i first um went along to a church meeting which was teenagers so people around about my age um, they they were people who'd grown up going to church, so that was another thing. I hadn't grown up going to church. I was also, um, it was, what was it, 1980. So, well, 1979, when I first started attending this this particular church that turned out to be a Methodist one, as I'd never heard of the Methodist before. Um, so 1980, and I, I was kind of in the hippie culture at the time. So I turned up with my embroidered jeans. I embroidered my own jeans with record covers and stuff, and I was really good. As you did then. And, um, yeah. yeah, and an Afghan coat and and um curtains and caftans and stuff and and beads and all kinds of beads and all kinds of things which i'm wearing down my wrist now um and that wasn't acceptable people like me did not go to church so there was there was that side of it the church people raised in church didn't like it but it was actually in the methodist church. although they did in the jesus movement didn't they 
I know, I've been reading a lot about the Jesus movement with the Larry Norman songs that are coming up next. Yeah, I mean, Lonnie Frisbee so it fascinates me because I've not come across him until a few months ago. Lonnie Frisbee, who was responsible for John Wimber becoming a Christian and so on. And yeah, they were the whole Jesus freak stuff and Larry Norman with the Jesus movement and stuff. I would have been better in California. <laughs> I might, wouldn't I might we have fitted, all? <laughs> yes, I might have fitted in in California, but in England, no. Um, but I mean, it was it was a fascinating time of going slightly off the subject because it was the end of the charismatic movement, and I became a Christian without any church background. Any, any I didn't know any Christians. But doesn't that doesn't that, in a very real sense, authenticate you know yes. the fact because yeah. you didn't know all the no. all the religious stuff, and you yeah. didn't know the the boxes to tick. Never mind no. whether you were ticking them. Or and not. a lot of people I knew suddenly became Christians as well. Just just out of the blue, I was an apprentice in ICI at the time, and other apprentices suddenly became Christians, and it was like. It was really st- well. It, was, it wasn't strange because I didn't know what else to expect. But it was what I considered normal. I consider what I experience now as strange. I think why is nobody becoming a Christian? Why are we not seeing people saved all the time? It just happened as a matter of course back in those days, and you didn't have to do great campaigns or anything. It just happened. But it was the end of the charismatic movement, so things were different anyway. Yeah. So so the neatly sort of testimony of this is what you were before a christian these are the right words that you said you know you followed the four steps and then you became a christian and now this is who you are afterwards that didn't happen back then i'm not sure it should happen today but um it's what people expect as a certain way it's got to happen but no it's when it was in my first methodist circuit was evangelical and charismatic and it was when i gave my testimony there it was like oh are you sure you're a christian because you haven't said the right words or prayed the right prayer or done the right... But sadly, isn't you know, isn't that the way that so many of us have been brought up, you know, and particularly mm. those even in the, what would be termed as the evangelical side of the wing of the church, you yeah. know, that, you know, you, there, there are certain things that you do and mm. there's certain praise that, prayers that you pray yes. uh, and you certainly, you certainly become, you know, uh, very much convicted by your sin mm. and that sort of thing. Um, uh, and, and, I, and I guess if that doesn't happen, it's out of the norm. Yeah. Alan Hirsch, who writes a lot of good stuff these days, he talks about Jesus' method of discipling. And you look at that in the Gospels and you think, when did he ever tell anybody what they had to do? They just followed him. And if it was one year or three years, depending on which Gospel you're reading, for a one or three year period, these people are just following him. And and when he's crucified and resurrected at the end, they still haven't really got a clue. It's not till the day of Pentecost that they get the idea. But he's not sort of saying, you know, if, if I don't do this now, they might get hit by a bus or a chariot, I suppose, given the year. Um, <laughs> and where are they going to spend eternity? Jesus wasn't bothered about that kind of stuff. He just sort of took them with him along the way, you know. And I think maybe we need a bit more of that. Mm. So what was it for you then that was the crunch? Can you remember uh, th- that moment when you, you knew you were a Christian? You, you, yeah, you, it was you, straight after I prayed that prayer. God make me a Christian. What a prayer. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Straight afterwards, instant change in so many things that I just knew. And and that's the thing I have. I mean, I know a lot of people talk about doubt these days, but I have experienced so much real God that I can't doubt. I mean, I've, I've always got this illustration that I've never used, um, which I was going to use with you because you don't know my wife, but my wife's from Northern Ireland. She's from County Armagh. She's from Hamilton's Bourne, little village just outside Rich Hill. You'll have to bring her in with you next yeah. time you come. But then you'll you'll have met her then. But this is the point. You see, I'm telling you all this, and I can tell you who she is and her name, and and you'll believe me, and you'll have faith to believe. But I know her because I've got a relationship with her, and that's the difference I see between in, in church people. You'll believe it because I've told you, and you're taking my word for it. But I know her, and that's that's how I see it with God. I mean, I I know Him. So when people say you've got to doubt, 
I mean, I've heard people say, I've had people say it to me, you've got to doubt because otherwise there's something wrong with the way you believe. And I think, but if you know somebody, I know my wife, am I, am I to doubt that I'm married to her? Am I to doubt that she exists? Or what am I supposed to doubt? You know, it's, yeah. it's that, you know, you can doubt all you like because you've never met her and you haven't got a relationship with her. But I can't. I suppose one of the things in that, though, is that we're living in, in sceptical days, aren't we? We're, yeah. we're, we're living in days, we're, we're even with people maybe who call themselves Christians, I mean, we all haven't figured everything out. You know, oh, no, not everything. Ha- half the time, you know, we don't know what's mm. going on. But, uh, but what you're talking about is that is that fundamental knowing that you are loved by, by yeah. God. And, of course, you knew that, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I, I never had a problem with the, as people have said, liberals generally say, you know, you can't call God father because people have a problem with their father. So I have to call him mother because nobody has a problem with their mother. But my mother rejected me before I was born. So, so you had I don't a problem. call her mother. And you so, didn't know your dad. You know, <laughs> so... Um, that that never entered into it with me. It was just this, this is this is the God who does accept me. This is the God who does love me. This is the God who died for me. So in as Jesus a as name. a minister and I, mm-hmm. and if some if I came along to you and and I didn't get a clue about God and I said, you know, Martin, how do how do I become a Christian? You know, I'm, what should I do? What would you, what would you be saying to me? I, I would well, I'd ask you first of all where, what you knew, what your experiences were, and I, I would say just ask him to accept you. I wouldn't say make me a Christian. That kind of thing, yeah. I mean, use your own words, but <laughs> that's what um, you said, wasn't it? Yes, that's what I said. But I, I would just say, just just say to him, you know, I, I can't cope with life. Just help, come in, take over. And I mean, I, I've done that with people, and it, it does. I mean, I've taken one person through the four steps, you know, the, 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 the standard way to do it, and that worked. She was a Christian for about a year, and then she backslid. But other people, it has been through a process of just just accept that this is who God is. And, and and trust, you know, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of knowledge, but then the thief on the cross didn't have a lot of knowledge of who Jesus is and what he'd done. Just, this is a God who sent his son to die for you in your place for everything that you've ever done. Because in my first years as a minister, I was in Northern Ireland where they, had, they knew about guilt. Now I've been in England ever since, well, Scotland as well, where they don't know so much about guilt. But the guilty ones always say, God will never accept me because I'm, I've sinned too much. You don't too, find too many English people saying that. But... <laughs> But they have other issues, and I've spent most of my time dealing with the sinned against rather than the sinners. So the people who've been sinned against, it's, yeah, but God can change all of that, is kind of what I would say to them. That's why it would depend on where you were. If you were a sinner, it's one thing. If you're a sinned against person, a victim, it's a whole different way of approaching what it means to become a Christian. It's here is a God who loves you. Yes, okay, that stuff happened, but it's brought you to this point, and from this point on, you can be in his family and... He will just accept you. Just open yourself up to him. Now, of course, leading on to uh, your next piece of music. Now, you you described yourself as being, you know, a sort of a, a rocker. You know, you were in the Jesus movement, wearing the beads. You still got the long hair, and you and you still you still got the beads yeah. and all that sort of thing. So, at heart, you're still a rocker, aren't you? Sort of, yeah. More, yeah. more the hippie side of things, but yeah. Indeed. I had my hair cut yesterday just for the radio. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> You, you can see it, can't you? Yeah. Trouble is, that, you know, Julian, he introduced uh, you to me. You know, he said that when he looks at you, he's just jealous, you know, because you've got... I've got more you, head than you, he has, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You're listening to Community Now on Hope FM with Keith Jones Bookshop, serving the community for over 50 years. Visit keithjones.co.uk. 
Well, Martin Keenan is my very special uh, guest uh, today, and what a life journey uh, he has had, one of uh, of rejection now. Well, you've been in leading the Methodist Church, is it, is it 25 years, you say? 25 years. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time, and of course, the Nazarene Church is, uh, uh, as well. And just reflecting on, on that song, you know, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? Of course, you know, there was a time whenever rock music was very much associated as being the devil's mm-hmm. music, and probably to a certain degree, you know, like music reflects what people feel and where they, where they are. But did you get criticism for the fact that you were into that sort of music and indeed into that culture? Yeah. Um, I, I, when I went to the Nazarene College, um, I, I went to Nazarene College for three years because I, w- I was going into a counselling ministry, was my intention. And then I did three years at University of Ulster doing sociology degree. Went back to Nazarene College again for another year. And the report I had at the end of it said, um, with my anachronistic hairstyle and unconventional clothing, I would never make it in the ministry. I had to look up anachronistic to see what it meant. But, um, <laughs> what does it mean? Old fashioned, out of, out of style. Um, I mean, I, I did argue the point because they said it's because I wear jeans and I didn't own a pair of jeans at the time. But, you know, that was just my getting back. But that wasn't the type of person that, that could even be a minister because my hair was too long to be a minister. You know, I think Jesus, long blonde hair, you know. Um, but <laughs> of course. <laughs> obviously, every Sunday school picture. Um, but yeah, you've got to dress a certain way. You've got to have certain attitudes. You've got to like certain things. I mean, I've had that. I've had people say to me, you know, as a minister, oh, here's a choir. You like the choir. Or here's a cathedral. You like cathedrals because you're a minister and that's what you do. And that's what you like. And here's the kind of car that you drive. And here's, you know, all the kind of things that you're supposed to do. And you think, I mean, I've had a lot of people say to me over the years, not for a long time now, you don't look like a minister. And I've always said, I look like this one. <laughs> oh, what does a minister, what does a minister yeah. look like? But then again, we go back to caricature, don't we? You know, yes. the, more to you, yeah. like, oh, 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 yeah, that, oh, that kind of sort of thing. thing yeah. you know. And clearly, I mean, I don't know what your view is, but w- w- some people would say we're living in a post-Christian era here mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom and so on. Obviously, our rules, uh, you know, our laws and so on are still based on Christian principles. But clearly, there, there are, are so many folk who are not in our churches. They're, they're mm-hmm. probably more grey Heard people like you and I, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, in 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 church. Why is it? And do you feel that the general populace have said no to God, or have they maybe said no to what we portray God to be? Yes, <clears throat> definitely the second one. I think they've said no to church because <sighs> I think generally people would have a wrong impression. I mean, I don't know. I say people would have a wrong impression of it. I know I was nearly 18 when I became a Christian, so I didn't have a lot of experience of what church was supposed to be. But I'd I'd been to the odd funeral. I'd been to the odd wedding, and that was all I knew. And people have soap operas now, and they see them. The vicar's always weird, isn't he? There's always something wrong with him somewhere. Um, And that's how it's portrayed. And they believe that. I mean, people believe soap operas are real, so there is that issue. But then then is is reality worse than the soap operas or better than the soap operas? I'm not sure. I I, I don't know why people would come to church. I mean, people still get the children christened every now and then, and they come in and they go through the whole service. And you've got to wonder how that speaks to them in any way. What's that to do with with their life? And I think I've had this idea for a long time. I I started a church for unchurch people in Eastbourne, um, beginning of the century, beginning of the millennium. (laughs) And... I, I've I've looked at it all theologically and everything, and the idea of a church for unchurched people is not biblical because there's no such thing as a church for unchurched people in the Bible. In the New Testament, the church is for Christians, and in the early 
centuries after the, for the end of the apostolic era, it was, all, it was for Christians. The Christians went out and got people converted. And the first church I started going to as a Christian after I left this one where I didn't become a Christian in the church, it was in the youth club, I started going to a free Methodist, which is similar to the Nazarene church. And that was a new church, met in a community centre. The minister was an evangelist from California. It wasn't part of the Jesus movement, unfortunately. He didn't approve of my hair or clothes either. Um, I used to meet people on the door with my Afghan waistcoat on. He was never happy with that, but I was on the door. Afghan. You came to church and you could come dress as you liked. It was my idea. But we met in a community centre, and, and he got people converted and then brought them to church. And I thought, that's the way to do it, isn't it? That is not setting up a church and saying, come along and... I mean, that is the modern way to do it, and it, it works to a certain degree. But, but I think talking to people that's the one thing we tend to forget to do is talking to people you know we will leaflet an area we will stand on a street corner or one of my churches wants to meet on the cliff top and sing at people but we won't talk to them and unless you make relationships develop relationships with people we're never going to get anywhere and the, the church is I, mean, I, I, I used to say this for a long time if your church closed would your community notice I'm about to find out aren't I because they've been closed for a year did anybody notice? Did it make a difference? Did it make a difference to the spiritual atmosphere that we weren't in there any longer? Did anybody realise that we weren't there? Once we, all, we get back and everything's what people refer to as back to normal or new normal, um, I'm using inverted commas here and you can't see, but um, will anybody realise that we've gone back and will they have realised that we left? And what are we doing? And I think a lot of the time, one of the problems, I, I keep saying this about the Methodist Church, John Wesley's problem was he had too many people and not enough people to lead the churches, and that's where the circuit system came from, and that's why ministers end up having circuits and sections of circuits. As a declining movement, the circuit system doesn't work because it's saying, let's try and keep it going. Wesley wasn't saying, let's try and keep it going. He said, you've got to live up to a certain standard of Christian living, a certain standard of holiness, or you're out. You know, the, the membership ticket was... You, you were asked questions of how many temptations did you have this week and how did you resist them and that kind of thing and unless you had your card you couldn't have communion now it's like let's get as many people in as we can otherwise we're going to close and we can't afford to pay the ministers and you know and can't keep me in a job and it's a complete opposite view when we're, we're saying we need them so we're trying to we compromise everything to say we, we want you to come to our church and once you've compromised to a certain degree you've got to ask well why would anybody come what are we doing that's different? And so what have people missed in the last 12 months that we've been shut? And we've been open on and off in the last 12 months, but, but have they noticed? Did they notice when we opened in September? Did they notice that we closed again in November? Did they notice that we opened again the other week in some churches? And I, I don't think the church is doing anything as the church. And of course, I mean, obviously the church, you know, generous generally speaking the church reflects sort of many many things there'll be some churches we go to on, on a Sunday and they're packed you, yes. know, you, you yeah. can't find a seat you know, yeah. there's, uh, and there's others of course where there's hardly anybody there yeah. you, you know yeah. at all uh, but do we ask the question well, well why why is one church like this and the other church not but then also of course the empty church syndrome um was true of course at the turn of the century in Wales where mm -hmm. where the churches were well, the little chapels, they call them, they were all mm. empty. And then all of a sudden, and out of the blue, God does something, as in fact he did in your life. Yes, yes, it does. It can happen. The Welsh Revival in 1904, that was, well, I mean, everybody that I've read on the subject says it was down to praying. It was down to opening themselves up. And, and Jesus has to be part of it. I find Jesus is sadly missing in a lot of... 
a lot of my experience of church these days. And uh, we, we can have the systems, we can have the hymns, we can have everything as it should be, but Jesus doesn't seem to come in. I think he did in 1904, and that Welsh revival spread around the world until the First World War killed it off. It's interesting that that happened in the order it did. In, in my life, I don't think anybody, I don't know of anybody that was praying for me because I didn't know anybody that was a Christian. Um, I've had discussions with people about that. Someone must have been, but they weren't. So revival, the 1904 revival, other revivals that we hear about, it starts with people praying. The, the charismatic movement, I don't know, maybe it just spread like a virus, you know, like a pandemic, <laughs> and people caught it. But would it be without being exposed to any individual person? But could it also be true that, and when talking about why people don't go to church and so on, that, that isn't there this hunger and thirst in a in a lot of people? I mean, even through the pan- pan- pandemic, yeah. she mentioned there, though, although people haven't been able to meet together in churches, it is true that people have been praying yeah. more, and and certainly the internet has been reflected. So many yes, people, yeah. you know, hitting uh, 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 and so on. So it seemed to me that 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 the the the, the spirituality in people. You know, is there a God? Uh, mm. What does that mean to me? That that has clearly risen within yeah. the general oh, yeah. populace, yeah. and I guess that provides a, an opportunity. But this, there's this other exciting thing that you know that when God suddenly mm. uh, steps in and decides, you know, to have mercy, you know, on a nation. Of course, the UK is is one country. There are other countries in in the world where it's quite a different story. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I. I Spirituality, yes, there's a lot of people interested in spirituality. And I mean I've I've had conversations with people who they don't they're not religious but they're spiritual. And I I try to get around what they mean by religious, and religious means going to church and doing the stuff that I've been talking about, you know, the all the hymn singing, the choirs, the buildings, the dressing, the whatever. And and conforming. Where spirituality you can just be yourself and get in touch. But it's a question of what they're getting in touch with. But that's where we need to be, I think. And we need to concentrate more on that. I think it's it's the fact that we do run the church more like a business, and I've been saying that for a long time as well, that we're failing because we're trying to keep the business going. If we realise that our main job is to, is to reach those people and never mind who comes on a Sunday morning at half past ten or whatever time of day it is, never mind whether they sing the songs, just, just go out there and be church. And if they come on a Sunday, fair enough, they come on a Sunday, but they don't have to come on a Sunday. It's not all about Sunday morning for an hour. So, Martin, what is it that keeps you going? Uh, wh- what is it that keeps you encouraged? Because you clearly haven't given up. You haven't given up on faith, and you certainly haven't given up on the, on the church. What keeps you? What keeps you encouraged? Keeps you moving? It's just every now and then I see I see a, a sign that something has got through. That someone has finally clicked. After in some cases, a lot of cases, the people I know, a lot of years of going to church, suddenly they've realised that there is actually something in this and I mean there's, there's an awful lot of things that would put you off and just say oh what's the point but um, something's going to happen I, mean, I, I, I that church plant that I did I was nine years in a new church with people in their 20s and 30s and seeing that and thinking that that can be done again but it can't be done by a congregation that wants to maintain things as they are but, but knowing that that God can do that because he's done it before and what he did for me yes it can be done again it's not time limited it wasn't a particular era it wasn't a particular decade and it, it's it's just wanting to be there when it happens this is Hope FM well that of course is uh, Larry Norman 
singing there about the ultimate outlaw, the one who didn't fit in and, of course, went to the cross because of that particular song, of course, quite appropriately entitled uh, The Outlaw. <laughs> so you're in, you're in good company. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, obviously, in a few weeks' time, we're going to be celebrating a, a festival which which made all the difference in the world to the to disciples in Jesus' time. I mean, he was going away, but he said... I'm going to send somebody else. Uh, and it made a big difference to you, didn't it? It did. I mean, that, that's what I was saying about the difference between knowing and believing. It, 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 if you've experienced the, the power of God, then it's kind of hard to doubt it. And, yeah, the story I was going to tell was um, when I transferred into the Methodist church, I, I was in my first circuit. I had nine churches that I was responsible for. And um, one of them was running an Alpha course, and it came to the healing night. I'd never been on an Alpha course before. This was 1996, 97, around about then. And I got a phone call saying, would you come to the healing service, the healing session of the Alpha course? Because you know, you're a minister and you'll know what to do. And, you know, like every minister knows what to do in a healing service. Um, <laughs> but I went along. It was on in a house. So I went along to it and it came to that we had the talk. And afterwards, you lay hands on anybody that had something that was wrong with them that needed prayer. And I laid hands on somebody and they got healed. And I was fascinated because I've been to healing services before. Um, I've I've been up for healing and not experienced anything, but someone was healed when I laid my hands on them. And this was in a circuit where they they had, I think once a month, they had healing services where people were falling on the floor, as we call it, or slain in the spirit, as it used to be called. And there was a lot of that going on in a different church, not the one that was running this Alpha course. And it just kind of developed from there that I um, I found I had... I'd, I'd gone into the ministry originally with counselling in mind, but gifts of healing, as Paul puts it, plural gifts. So it can be psychological, emotional and physical. And I found that when I laid hands on people, they tended to get healed. Um, at the same time, I'd, I'd had a bad leg, which after about a year or so, I went to the doctor and he did a blood test and panicked and told me I was severely anemic and brought me in to check me out. And turned out I had celiac disease. And um, I immediately had to go on a, a, a completely gluten-free diet and I put on a stone in weight, you know, give up bread, cake and biscuits as they always <laughs> say and I gained a, a mm. stone in weight. But carried on doing the healing services. I went back to the doctor after a couple of years and it turned out my pain in my leg was um, sciatica. But when it came time to leave that circuit, the people who were organising the healing ministry said they thought maybe it was time I was prayed for. So they prayed over me in, in a lot of them praying in tongues and they prayed over me and I know a little bit of Arabic. I've got an Arabic friend, and she taught me a few phrases. And one of them is the obvious one, which is thank you. And one of the people was saying shokran, shokran, shokran. And I thought, well, that's someone who doesn't know any Arabic. But she was saying thank you in Arabic. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Did nothing about it, because if you've got celiac disease, you have to stay on a gluten-free diet. So I moved to my next place where I was planting this church. And I thought after a year or so, maybe I should try it out. So I went to my doctor, who was very cooperative, and I said, I want to do a test. Because I said, you know, people have laid hands on me for healing i want to see if i've been healed so i want you to do a blood test now i want to eat all the cake and biscuits i can for the next fortnight and chocolate and everything and then i want to come back for a blood test so we did that two weeks later celiac disease had gone i said i could be a fluke let's do it again for two more weeks so i did it for two more weeks came back got a blood test and every year after that i was having an annual blood test and the celiac disease is completely gone and it's interesting when I tell that story. If I tell that story to people with celiac disease, they don't like it because, you know, you've got it for life. You can't be cured. No, it can't, but God can heal it. Still got the sciatica. 20-something years later, still got the sciatica. And I never understand how that works, but I know that God heals. He's healed me. I eat anything I like now. I put on another half stone after I went off the gluten-free diet. 
because I was making up for lost time. And, <laughs> but I, I have done it. I've laid hands on people. I've done it in hospitals, laid hands on people. I had a woman who was um, on a life support machine and the doctor was going to turn all the machines off. I prayed for her. He turned the, the machines off and she lived another two years after that. And the doctor declared it a miracle. Um, and yet it's funny. I find that when I've got people in my churches who are ill, some people will say to them, why don't you go and ask him to lay hands on you? And they go, oh, no, no, it's okay. And people don't want to be prayed for. And I, I do find that odd. But I, I think we need more of the signs and wonders, as John Wimber used to call them. We do need more of that. We need to see that God is actually doing something. Yeah, and it's, it's odd, isn't it? Because, of course, Jesus' ministry, the reason why yeah. thousands were attracted to him was because he had mm. compassion. And, and, and he, yeah. a large part of his ministry, of course, was healing people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our our time is is almost uh, over. You're going to have to come back again and okay. and, and, and talk more. But let's talk a wee bit more uh, just about your book, okay. uh, 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 accepted at last, and indeed your website, which is www.acceptedatlast.org dot com um, And um, so, how's the book gone down? Because this is telling you pretty much your life story, isn't it? To a certain point. So, some people have accepted it and some have rejected it. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody somebody who has read it said to me they couldn't put it down, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, uh, but, but of course, give, give them a good reason why they should get a copy of this. It, it tells you what God can do in somebody's life. Yeah, some, somebody who had no hope, you know, voted least likely to succeed. And I succeeded. Yeah. It tells you about that. It's, it's the first 50 years. People have asked if there's going to be a sequel. I said, yeah, in the next 50 years. 50 years, yeah. There'll, there'll be another. <laughs> well, it's seven, uh, seven ninety nine. Uh, uh, how do they get it? Well, I've got the only copies of it, but you can put it in Keith Jones if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you're, well, I'll have a, I'll have a word with the okay. guys down in Keith Jones. Uh, but also, if, if you're listening to the program this morning, you really want to get a copy of this book, just drop me an email, blairc at hopefm.com, and I'll make sure that one way or another you, you get a copy. That's blairc at hopefm.com. For more inspirational interviews, podcasts, and Hope FM best bits, visit hopefm.com forward slash listen again.